Isaiah chapter 63, beginning in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. For the last ten weeks, we've been looking at portraits of Jesus in the prophecy of Isaiah. Jesus is the root of Jesse. Emmanuel, the first and the last, a great light, a sure foundation, smitten by God, among many others. The 66 chapters of Isaiah are like a photo album. Amazingly, Isaiah took these snapshots 700 years before Jesus walked this earth. Isaiah's photos are prophetic. And they cover Jesus' ministry from his birth to the end of time. The portraits of Isaiah span both Jesus' first and second comings. They are a priceless collection. And here in chapter 63 is another important portrait of Jesus. Though you may have never read these verses before, if you're a patriotic American, you have heard a song that was inspired by this passage. Actually, the music was written by a rowdy band of soldiers at the outset of the Civil War. Originally, the tune was called John Brown's Body, mocking one of the soldiers. It amounted to what was basically a bar tune used to rally the war-wearied morale of the Union troops. But one day in November 1861, a devout abolitionist named Julia Ward Howe heard this song played by the military band during a troop review outside of Washington. The melody stuck in her mind. That night, she awoke from sleep, inspired with lyrics. Stanzas began to twine together as she lay in bed. She jumped up. She grabbed a pen. She scrawled the words before they were forgotten. And what words did she write? Well, here they are. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And in the chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah, our God is marching on. It sounds like Isaiah 63 set to music. You and I recognize Julia Howe's lyrics as the battle hymn of the republic. For Americans, it's one of our favorite hymns. It's played at most patriotic celebrations. Interestingly, it was Winston Churchill's favorite song. The battle hymn was played at the memorial for the 9-11 victims in the week following the terrorist attacks. It's featured at most presidential inaugurations. And the last recorded words of Martin Luther King Jr. the night before his assassination were these, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. This picture in Isaiah 63 of Jesus in the wine press 
trampling his enemies is embedded in American culture. When Julia Ward Howe was awakened that night with these lyrics forming in her head, earlier that day she must have been reading and reflecting on Isaiah 63 or even Revelation 19. You see, it was the start of the Civil War, a conflict that loomed large. Much was at stake. Julia Howe and her husband had been working tirelessly to put an end to slavery. But now that war was imminent, she wondered how many men would have to die. Perhaps she had turned again to her Bible for comfort. She reflected on the final war, the war that will end all wars. At the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus will come a second time. He'll move swiftly and justly. And I'm sure Julia hoped that her war would be just, but also swift. Revelation 19 sees into the future and describes the return of Jesus Christ. Heaven opens, and Jesus is seen on the back of a white horse. Not a show pony, oh, not a racehorse, not even a workhorse, but a war horse. John doesn't see Jesus floating from heaven on a fluffy, puffy, cumulus cloud. He's on the back of a stallion. It has been bred for battle. It is shaking its mane. It is stomping its hoofs. Hot breath billows out of its nostrils. Revelation 19 says of its rider, in righteousness he judges and makes war. At his first coming, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a beast of burden, the chief servant among the animal kingdom. But there is no donkey this time. Jesus isn't coming to serve, but to slay. His patience has now been tapped out. His mercy has been rebuffed for the final time. Now he comes to judge and make war and to do so righteously. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But apparently he gets that title after he kills off all his enemies. The Prince of Peace is no pacifist. When Jesus returns to this earth, he'll be coming to bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. Earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 42, verse 13, it declares, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Revelation 19 provides us an ominous description of our Lord Jesus in that day. His eyes like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule with a rod of iron. In addition, names are ascribed to Jesus, faithful and true, the word of God. Then on his robe and on his thigh is the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's when the writer of Revelation, John the Apostle, reveals his source material he has been reading Isaiah 63, for in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 15, John writes this of Jesus, He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It is the same imagery of divine judgment that we find in the passage before us, Isaiah chapter 63. Think of the wicked inhabitants of earth as grapes. And the world is a giant wine press full of grapes. There will come a day 
when God will finally put his foot down on the evil in this world. Like a vineyard worker crushing the grapes between his toes, Jesus will tread or trample the wicked of this earth under his feet. Their blood will splatter on his robes. Granted, this is not baby Jesus or gentle Jesus or Jesus blessing the children or even Jesus breaking the bread. This is the Lord Jesus breaking the stiff necks of evildoers who won't stop sinning against God and man. And if Jesus is the king, then he has to take such action. Humanity can't just walk into eternity with people hell-bent on robbing and raping and cheating and swindling. That won't be heaven. That would be hell. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, Visualize World Peace. Well, to really do so, visualize this. Jesus annihilates Satan and all who join in his rebellion. He retakes the reins of this runaway planet. He conquers his enemies, establishes his kingdom, and enforces obedience to his sovereign will. You see, then and only then will we realize world peace. One Saturday night, I was on a plane. I was coming back to teach on Sunday morning. I was taking the red eye. I was preparing my sermon. It was on Revelation. Unbeknownst to me, while I was sitting there typing on my computer, the young lady sitting next to me, she was looking over my shoulder. Well, finally she blurts out, she says, How can you say Jesus crushes his enemies and breaks their stiff necks? That doesn't sound very Joel Osteenish. <laughs> I'm not picking on Joel, but that's just what she said to me. In her mind, she had limited the concerns of Jesus to feeding the poor and caring for the elderly and making everybody happy. She couldn't imagine why Jesus would prioritize holiness and justice and what's right. She had pushed obeying God to the back of the bus. And let me tell you how I responded to her. I told that lady that God will one day, due to his rebellious... To, to these rebellious people on earth, what he has already done to his own son. The father sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. You see, the price of sin is death. Thus, Jesus died in our place. At the cross, he pardoned our sin and he satisfied God's justice. This means that when Jesus does return, every death will be a senseless suicide. No one has to die. People do so because they reject Jesus and they resist his authority. They put themselves under his wrath. And this is what we find here in Isaiah 63 at the second coming of Jesus. Isaiah lived 800 years before John, yet his prophecy gives us details that John didn't envision. In fact, these Old Testament prophets often saw more than the New Testament writers. You see, John sees heaven open and Jesus coming with an army. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 adds that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. Both New Testament writers, they're reporting on the battle, but from the press box, from the upper seats. It's Isaiah and the other Old Testament prophets that give us the up-close look. Isaiah is embedded in the, with the troops He's a war correspondent filing reports from the battlefield. And Jerusalem is in trouble. In the previous chapter, we're told that the Lord has watchmen on the walls. 
Isaiah knows that the city is surrounded. The prophet Joel identified the center stage for the final battle as the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's right in the heart of Jerusalem. It's what we call the Kidron Valley. For Jerusalem's sake, God will not rest. It will be time to act. Isaiah 62 verse 11 states, Say to the daughter of Zion, Surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. Jesus, the Savior, is coming to reward the righteous and to repay the wicked. You remember in Matthew 24, Jesus warned the Jews of the last days, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This abomination, it causes desolation. It refers to the antics of the evil Antichrist. It's his army that attacks Jerusalem and forces the Jews to escape to the mountains of Edom. Edom is the region southeast of Jerusalem. Basra was its capital. The last battle is often called Armageddon, but Har Megiddo, or the mountain of Megiddo, is just the staging area. The battle is over Jerusalem, and those who are protected are hidden further south in Edom. You see, the final battle will cover all of the promised land, north to south. The enemy camps in the north. Refugees flee to the south. Jesus returns in the middle to Jerusalem. Our Lord descends to the Mount of Olives, to the same spot where He ascended 2,000 years earlier. Revelation 14 verse 20 speaks again of His treading out the grapes. The wine press was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the wine press up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. That's 200 miles. 200 miles is the length of Israel from north to south. From Megiddo to Basra, John foresees the day when all Israel, each of her pleasant valleys, will be filled with blood. And here in Isaiah 63, the prophet beholds our King Jesus at the end of that battle. The forces of Antichrist have been annihilated. The Jews who obeyed and fled have now been rescued. This, the revolt that has raged through the ages between sinful man and a holy God has finally been decided now. The coup struck down. Jesus Christ has won. And Isaiah says proudly of God's champion. He says, look at him. Oh, look at him coming. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. You can hear the pride and the praise in Isaiah's voice. Jesus is his conquering hero, and he's returning. And he looks the part, glorious in his apparel. That's another way of saying to a soldier, man, you are a credit to your uniform. He also says, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I picture Jesus marching boldly, not cocky, not strutting, but he strides with confidence and strength. He carries himself with class, with dignity, and with honor. And then Isaiah asks Jesus a question. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Jesus is fresh from battle. He's been to the winepress. His robe is covered in a reddish stain. 
Have you ever spilt wine or, or grape juice on a white shirt or blouse? Well, you can forget about ever completely getting out that stain. Expect a permanent blemish. That wine is almost like a dye. But there is one substance that stains even worse than wine, and that's blood. There are companies today that specialize in cleaning crime scenes and removing blood. And Jesus has gotten bloody. Isaiah notices the stains on his garments. He has been to the wine press of judgment. He has trampled the bodies of faithless men. And understand, Jesus makes no apologies here. He offers no disclaimers or justifications for his definite actions. Only modern man is fuzzy about God's judgment. We are the ones who have excused our sin and denied our sin and renamed our sin and ignored its penalties and have convinced ourselves that God doesn't care even though he has warned us that he very much does. Jesus answers Isaiah, I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. And it got messy. He says, their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. And after seeing this firsthand, Isaiah can now join with Julia Ward Howe when she sings, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But here is the main point of this morning's message. I want to draw your attention to what else Jesus says at the end of verse 1. For when Isaiah asks him, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus answers Isaiah, but look at how he identifies himself. It's I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Here he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has just proven his supremacy. He has beaten all challengers. He has conquered all rivals. Every uprising he has put down. And there is no guilt in his heart. Though his robes are splattered with the blood of men, not one drop is innocent blood. He bears no blame. His judgment is just. He has defended God's people and God's honor. When Isaiah inquires, the Messiah answers, This is I who speak in righteousness. Jesus is just back from battle, and it is clear that he has been right in every instance, in all that he has performed, and in all that he has spoken. Let me reiterate, when all the blood has been spilt, and when the birds are feeding on the flesh of wicked men, at last, Jesus will stand righteous. No one will question the justice of his judgments or the fairness of his tactics. He has pleased the Father in all he has done. In that day, expect the Father again to speak from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In that day, listen for the angels. Perhaps they'll repeat the praise they spoke at his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
in that day, all of us, all people, will join and sing, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. But realize, that is not all that Jesus says. He doesn't just talk about his decisive victory and his righteous warring and his long-awaited judgment or his vindication of God's glory or of his holding of God's holiness. He is not sorry for what's happened, but there is some remorse for what could have been. For even when the final chapter is written, Jesus identifies himself not as mighty to judge or mighty to conquer, but as mighty to save. To the end, this is what presses on him most. Not his skill to fight and war and judge, but his ability to save. Recall in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet lists a whole repertoire of names for the Messiah. Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, even Mighty God. But when it's all said and done, Jesus isn't focused on being mighty God, no, he relishes being mighty to save. In the verse I read earlier, Isaiah 42, verse 13, it speaks of Jesus. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. Jesus is a mighty man. Look at him in battle. He is mighty in war. It is no surprise that Jesus, the God-man, God made flesh is referred to as both mighty God and mighty man. And yet when he refers to himself, it's mighty to save. Read through the Gospels and you'll discover Jesus was mighty in a million ways. He was mighty in wisdom. Jesus corrected the scholar and he confounded the skeptic and he comforted the sinner. He taught his disciples. Jesus was also mighty in power. He calmed the sea and walked on water and multiplied the bread and fish and healed the sick and raised the dead. He was mighty in spirit. He resisted the tempter when he was approached at a point of great weakness. He kept his composure when tried before Pilate. Even on the cross, he asked his father to forgive his accusers. He was mighty in discernment. With the woman at the well, Jesus steered the conversation to coax her into examining her own soul. He read the hearts of people, so much so that he often knew their thoughts before they spoke. And he was mighty in the Scriptures. Jesus had a command of God's Word. He spoke simply yet powerfully. He taught like no one else as one who had an authority from God. But here at the end of the age, Jesus doesn't identify himself as mighty in wisdom or mighty in power or mighty in spirit or mighty in discernment or even mighty in the scriptures. No, he calls himself mighty to save. This is the heart of Jesus. Here's what makes him tick. If you're looking for a motive of this, he is definitely guilty. Jesus is mighty to save. He loves saving people, and he's good at it. In fact, there is no one he can't save. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he was a short man with a long list of sins. He betrayed his fellow Jews to strong arm for Rome. He defrauded his own people and took more taxes than necessary. He was a greedy little guy. Jesus first saw Zacchaeus in a sycamore tree. 
so I could climb that tree to get a better look. And yet it was Jesus who looked straight into his heart. He took an interest in a man who had cut himself off from others, who had burned all his bridges. When Jesus showed up at Zacchaeus' house, the people criticized. They said, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. But of course he did. Jesus is mighty to save, and who else needs to be saved but sinners? Of course he's going to go to a sinner's house. Jesus forgave Zacchaeus. And you know, it felt so good to Zac that he made restitution so he'd be forgiven by all the people that he had defrauded. That visit that Jesus paid to Zacchaeus changed his life forever. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus explains his motive in the whole matter. He says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Of course, he is mighty to save. Of all the things that Jesus was mighty in doing, he was mightiest to save. Think of all the examples. The woman taken in, the, in adultery, in the very act, naked and angry and probably fuming as they threw at the feet of Jesus. He showed her mercy and gave her a new start. Or the puzzled rabbi, Nicodemus. Nick couldn't figure it all out. How can a man be born again? You think once you leave your mother's womb, there's no going back. Yet Jesus pointed him to the Holy Spirit, into faith in God's Son. And what about the lame man, Lord, through the roof? Again, Jesus was mighty to save. Not only did Jesus heal his crippled legs, but he forgave his sins, even a greater miracle. And Mary Magdalene, her heart was a hostile for seven demons, and yet Jesus, mighty to save, evicted them all. Or what about Saul of Tarsus? He was a Jewish rabbi who hated all things Jesus, especially his followers. Saul was en route to Damascus to kill Christians. When Jesus himself appeared to Saul on the roadside, it was as if Jesus had sat down in heaven and picked out the most unlikely convert he could possibly find. He saw this Saul breathing threats and murder, says the Scriptures. This would be like Jesus picking the chief imam of ISIS or its top terrorist. Just to show off his amazing grace, Jesus intercepts Saul, and in one glorious moment, he chooses him and saves him and calls him. In fact, years later, Saul, now named Paul, he explains that's exactly what had happened. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. And for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. In Paul, Jesus set a precedent. He picked out the biggest bully on the block and whipped him. He saved him. Paul was saying, Jesus came to save sinners. And to prove from the start he is mighty to save, he saved me. I want you to know my eyes have seen things. I have seen the most unlikely people saved by Jesus. People who have been drugged through the dregs of this world, who had fully embraced the dark side, who had shaken their fist in God's face. Mean people, people addicted and shameful and perverted and greedy and hateful. I have seen people who fit these descriptions gloriously saved. Never think anyone is a hopeless cause. 
that he or she is beyond the reach of Jesus. They are not, for he is mighty to save. Many years ago now, Kathy and I, we were walking out of a movie theater. There was a bar right next door, and the Lord prompted me to witness to the guy who was out front collecting cover charges. Well, when I finally mustered the courage, he had already gone back into the bar. Well, I went after him. He had moved from money collector to bartender. I approached the guy and I asked him if I could talk. I explained that God had prompted me to come and tell him about Jesus. By now, this big man, he had a tear in his eye. And I'll never forget him asking me, but what if I've murdered someone? I looked that man straight in the eye and I said to him, there is nothing you've done that Jesus won't forgive. And I believe that. I really do. For Jesus is mighty to save. Years ago, I read that Jeffrey Dahmer had become a Christian. Some of you will remember in the 1990s, Dahmer was one of America's most notorious serial killers. He was known as the Milwaukee cannibal for dismembering his victims and worse. The story goes, once he had completed his confession, he asked the detective who had been interviewing him for a Bible. After reading it and speaking to a chaplain, he gave his life to Jesus. The Lord saved him. In May 1994, Dahmer was baptized in a prison whirlpool. A couple of months later, he was shanked by an inmate. Was his conversion sincere? Was it real? Only God knows. But was it possible? Absolutely. Can a man guilty of cannibalism and even worse end up next to you in heaven? Absolutely he can. The answer is yes. You and I might recoil at that thought, but Jesus is mighty to save. And for him to save me, I can't resent him saving whoever he chooses to save. I just know that salvation is his specialty. Saving sinners is in Jesus' wheelhouse, man. If a person is truly sincere and genuinely desires to change and trust Jesus with his whole heart, there is nothing Jesus won't forgive. You know, sometimes when you find a forgiving soul, it's actually an evidence of their weakness. They're a pushover. They're just soft. They'd rather just drop the offense than deal with a legitimate injustice. They have no moral fortitude. Forgiveness, in a sense, is sort of their pathology. It's their sickness. You know, these are people that aren't strong enough to resist, and so they capitulate, and they just explain their cowardice as forgiveness. But believe you me, this was not Jesus. He speaks, and he does what is right. There is no weakness in him. He's glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus is never manipulated or conned. One day, he will trod down sinners in his anger. He will trample sinful folks in his fury. There's no need for me to soften those words. It's right there before you in your Bible. It's what Isaiah says. Jesus is nobody's pushover. When you give him no choice, when you reject his overtures of mercy, when you're hard in your heart and you stubbornly go your own way, he isn't queasy about it. He has a heart to save, but he also has the stomach to judge. Rest assured, Jesus forgives, not from his weakness, but from his great strength. He is mighty to save.
because he is strong in his love. See, here's the good news. On the cross, a price was paid. Willingly, Jesus laid down his life for sinful men. You know, for some reason, God continues to see his image in us. We still are the object of his love, even after all we've done. God planned out our salvation before time began, and it was Jesus' job to carry it out, and he has done so in earnest. In fact, our text tells us that this is what will characterize Jesus until the end of time, that he is mighty to save. And realize this prowess to save doesn't just mean that Jesus is able to reach low to the slimy sinner, bottom fish, so to speak. Jesus can save the person in the gutter. No doubt about it. But that's not all it means. To say Jesus is mighty to save means that his salvation extends from the guttermost but to the uttermost. I love Hebrews 7 verse 25. It tells us Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's not just the extent from which Jesus saves. It's all about the extent to which he saves. Realize, when you get to heaven, you'll never hear anyone comment, whew, that was a close call. Boy, I just got in by the skin of my teeth. No, you'll never hear that. Nobody will ever say that. Nobody barely gets saved. Jesus is mighty to save. That means the person that he saves is genuinely and eternally and fully and freely and deeply and lavishly and unequivocally saved. If you are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, then you're as forgiven as you'll ever be. Jesus doesn't assign parole. Or offer us probation? He only passes out complete pardons. It's like a pregnancy. You can't be partially pregnant. Don't come up to me and say, man, I'm barely pregnant, Pastor Sandy. And likewise, you can't be barely saved or partially saved. You're either saved or you're not. Our Lord Jesus is mighty to save. That means that he covers all bases. He's attentive to all details. Nothing slips through the cracks or escapes his notice. His salvation is comprehensive and guaranteed. For example, Jesus forgives all our sin, past sin, present sin, even future sins we've yet to commit. Oh, certainly we need to live our lives in faith and in repentance, but even our future sin has been washed by the blood of Jesus. Jesus pays for it all. His salvation is comprehensive coverage. It includes forgiveness and acceptance and the peace of God and restoration and joy and wisdom and the baptism and power of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and streets of gold and on and on, riches untold. It's all in the policy. Have you read it? If you're not experiencing a full and free salvation, friend, you're living below your privileges. Jesus provides for your victory. Our agent is mighty to save. Recently, a Tokyo woman, she was saved by the combined effort of her fellow commuters. Apparently, this very skinny lady had followed through the 80-inch gap that's between the train and the platform there in the Tokyo subway. It was a Monday. It was in the middle of rush hour. 
a public announcement alerted all the passengers that this woman was trapped. Forty fellow passengers all muscled up. The train has a suspension that allows it to lean. And so her fellow passengers, they pushed the 32-ton train away from the platform just far enough to allow enough room for this woman to be rescued. She was pulled to safety. Her salvation was a community effort. But your salvation was not. It was accomplished by one person and one person alone. Notice what Jesus says to Isaiah when he comes up from Basra. I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. The fury he unleashes, the righteous anger he demonstrates is very personal to him. No one is with him now. He does this all alone. Think of this as Jesus' solitary work. You know, often when he healed folks, he recruited the help of others, the guys who lured the man down through the roof. He multiplied the loaves and fish only after his disciples had brought to him their lunch. Jesus was always involving others in his mission, but not here. What an irony. The billion cries for justice that have been ringing in God's ears for centuries will finally be answered by the one man who is mighty to save. And this brings up a vital point. When you get angry over the injustices you see, or you become concerned that evil men might be getting away with their crimes, oh, certainly work the system, take the proper channels. God created government to keep evildoers in check. But once you've done all that the law allows, don't go further and take matters into your own hands. Romans 12 verse 19 tells us, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is only one person that God in heaven trusts with final judgment, and that is His Son, Jesus. The one who is mighty to save is the only one that God allows to mete out and execute His righteousness. And there is a big reason that Jesus does this work solo. It's because his work to save was also done by himself. No one went to the cross with Jesus. Your salvation was no tag team effort. Jesus needed and asked for no one's help, not your help, no one's help. He died alone. He bore our sin all by himself. It wasn't 40 people pushing the bus so you could be saved. One brave soldier of God did all the heavy lifting. I read recently a quote from the New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg. I think this is the guy who wants to ban 32-ounce soft drinks. I love my big slurp. But he was reflecting on all the good that, that he thinks he's done for the citizens of New York. Bloomberg told a reporter, he says, I'm telling you, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. I hope the mayor was misquoted because that's really arrogant. He's earned his place in heaven? Sorry, Michael, that's not how God sees it. Heaven won't be earned by me or by you, but by the Savior alone. In God's plan for the ages, 
Jesus does two things alone. He hangs on a cross to author our salvation, and he treads out the wine press to bring God's judgment to earth. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. But Jesus has a greater glory. He says it himself, and I hope you have ears to hear, for he means it. Jesus the Messiah is mighty to say.